0: We have this morning before us one of the greatest stories in the Bible. And it's, it's entirely true. This is not fiction. Um, the crux of the story will come in verse 21. And this is, this is where we see this choice that must be made. And we need to be confronted with this this morning. And so look, let your eyes look down there real quick. Chapter 18 of 1 Kings in verse 21, and we'll set this in its context in a moment, but just listen to Elijah's question to the people. He says, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. It's either Baal or it's the Lord. It's, it's, it's either or. The people wanted both And. But Elijah says no. It's one or the other. Well, one of the connections that we'll see this morning between this scene from almost 2800 years ago and the present is that we live in a both and culture. We we don't want to have to choose one thing and then reject another. We want we want to have our cake and eat it too. I've I've hear a commercial on the radio at times for some diet pill or some kind of some kind of diet program. I'm not sure exactly. But the, the line is basically this lose weight and eat what you want. We don't have to choose. We can eat how we want, when we want, and still lose weight. That's just kind of defines our culture today. And that and it goes beyond silly things like that, but it goes beyond in how, how we think about the bigger questions of life. People don't people want to um want to take elements from uh, seemingly competing traditions and religions and 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 um perspectives and they want to blend them together to make up their own concoction they don't want to have to choose one or the other they want to take a little bit from everything and put it together that's our culture it, our culture celebrates diversity and tolerance and and it embraces ambiguity in it and it and it places a high value unbelievably on on uncertainty uncertainty is a virtue in our day it's it's a good thing to not be sure about anything it it, it insists on that all options have validity it, it believes the truth is unknowable it considers any form of dogmatism to be just the height of arrogance that's the world we live in and so this 8th century B.C. story has everything to do with our 21st century A.D. world and lives today. And here's the thing you need to realize, though. Eventually, a both-and way of thinking is going to collide into one major obstacle. God. God. The, the Lord isn't satisfied with being one entree option along the spiritual buffet. He's not content with that. He's not content with respect or tolerance. He demands exclusive loyalty. And so this text this morning forces us to decide there is no middle ground here. Well, I want us to get right into the story of 1 Kings 18 and we'll read it and make a few comments and applications along the way. But before we we get right into it. I want us to do a quick countdown to kind of set up the context for us. Three, two, one. This is it. First thing: three, three years of drought. That's the first thing you need to understand. Now, I just want you to imagine. I know we read things like this, and we've it's familiar, and we just read it in a sentence and pass along. Imagine three and a half years with zero rain in the state of Georgia. Think of what that would do in our day to life here, how crippling that would be. We complain about outdoor watering restrictions when our petunias begin to wilt and we whine about that uh, because we have months without rain. But no rain or even dew for 42 months. Lake Lanier would probably be a little mud puddle. All these little smaller lakes, farm ponds would be just dusty craters Streams, rivers, springs dried up. Water wells, most would be dried up. Um, I mean, it would change life. The, I mean, there would be a large river like the Chattahoochee might have a, some water flow to it, but it would be nastier than it is even now. And, and, and the demands on it would be enormous. Farms would be deserts. You think of the trees that would die. We live in a forest. Three and a half years of no rain. You think trees are gonna, many trees are going to survive that? So massive deforestation, wildlife would die, the buzzards would be happy, but everything else would be miserable. Um, I mean, you just step outside your house and the air would be hazy and dusty, the whole climate would change. You'd walk and there would be no grass in your yard, so it would just be powder every time you step. So just think about that's life here. Now, we'd complain, we wouldn't like it, but we'd survive three and a half years with no rain. Because as awful as that would be, we'd be living better in that condition than most people in the world, in in most people in all places, of other places of the world, and in other, all other periods of world history live with normal weather patterns. Because we have air conditioning. <laughs> we have electricity. We probably still have a little bit of running water. It would be tan colored, but... Um, but we would have it. We could take baths. We live in sealed homes. We have windows and doors on our houses, something most people in the world do not have. We drive. We could drive our cars to Walmart and purchase bottled water and get frozen food. We're not dependent upon our gardens. We we have transportation systems that are unparalleled, and so we could bring food and water from other states and from around the world. It would cost more, but we would make it. And we can move. We can always just move to another state, another place that has rain. So it wouldn't be pleasant, but we'd make it. Now you imagine, though, the situation in 1 Kings 18. Eighth, ninth century B.C., Israel, zero rain, zero dew for three and a half years. Life is always hard there. But... Now, every day is just a struggle to survive to the next. After three and a half years, the drought had reached just catastrophic proportions. The people are are stretched to the very breaking point. People have suffered many losses. Farms, uh, orchards, vineyards, animals, loved ones, I mean their livelihood. They're starving to death. To get water, they would have had to walk miles and miles passed dried up well after dried up well to find a well that still had some dirty water in it and it was they're just not sure if they can make it any longer and so the but the but this is what I want you to see about the 3 years of drought the real significance of the drought as though I'm laboring to show you what it might have been like the real significance is not what it's like but why it was there that's the real important thing Where did it come from? What is it all about? Well, the drought is caused not by the burning hot sun. The drought is caused by the Lord's burning hot anger over His people's sin and their idolatry. And you back up even further. Why is the Lord angry? Again, because He's been stabbed in the back by His disloyal people. They've turned away from Him to worship and serve other gods. And what did God promise in Deuteronomy chapter 11 verse 16-17 we saw this last week, that when that happens when His people turn aside, worship serve other gods, He will cut off the rain and cause the land to dry up and produce nothing. So it's not and, and it's not that God is grumpy or vindictive He just is annoyed no He wants, the whole point of this is He wants His people to return to Him. This is a disciplinary measure to bring his people back to him as we'll see but there's another thing that this drought shows it shows the weakness of the god that the people have turned to to worship Baal, the storm god the god who brings rain and fertility to the land something's wrong with him he's either unable or he's unwilling to do anything about this drought because the people are calling to him and he's not doing anything and so that's first thing three years of drought we can do two and one really quick uh, I don't count in equal term in equal time. Two, two kings in this corner you have Ahab the atrocious and his wicked wife Jezebel he's been a complete failure as a leader of god's people he's led the nation into this demonic worship of of Baal and of other gods. Not only that, he along with Jezebel have sought to eradicate all of the Lord's true prophets from the land. Any mouthpiece for the Lord, they've tried to. They've they've sought to murder. So that's in one corner. That's one king. The other king in the story is the true, real king of Israel. The king of the universe. The Lord. He's here. He's in the story. He's everywhere. He's He's active in the unfolding of the story, and I don't want you to miss that or forget it. He is the he is the leading character in this story. His name is mentioned more than any other. He is the one that's really moving and and making things happen. So two kings. Finally, one. One prophet. One true prophet, that is. Remember, Elijah came onto the scene in chapter 17 out of nowhere. He confronts Ahab, he warns him, and and about the drought, and, and, and then he just disappears. And God takes him into hiding and has kept him there and has preserved his life through this drought, through extraordinary measures that we saw last week. And he's been hiding him away. But Elijah is this wanted man in, by Ahab and Jezebel. If you went into the post office in ancient Israel, his face would be plastered on the posters. Number one most wanted man in Israel, Elijah. Elijah. They wanted him dead. As we'll see, they searched all through the land and through all surrounding land looking for Ahab so they could kill him. And, and so he's this one he's this in man. But, and God, though, is about to bring him out of that frying pan of affliction and into the fire. He's going to bring him out of hiding into face Ahab. And so through Elijah, the Lord has created this crisis in the nation of Israel. God has done it through Elijah, and so these miserable three and a half years of drought have been this setup by God for what's about to take place. This showdown on Mount Carmel—it's all designed to force, by God, to force Israel and us to choose: Will you worship the Lord or idols? That's that's what we're that's what this is all about. So the question before us this morning that the text answers is, what are we supposed to do with an either-or God in a both-and culture? What are we going to do with Him? The first thing we see in the first movement of the text is we need to go public. Go public. The choice of whether we live by fear or by faith is linked to our certainty that the Lord is the living God. This is what we'll see in the first 16 verses of 18. So God's ready for Elijah to come out of hiding. He's, it's go time. And so look in verse 1 of chapter 18. We're in the text now. Let's walk through this together. Verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab. That's the command. And I will send rain upon the earth. That's the promise. So he gives him a command. He gives him a promise. Elijah believes God's promise and he obeys God's command. And he goes to find Ahab. So continuing on. Verse 2. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. The capital of Israel. And Ahab called Obadiah. Who was over the household. Now we have to stop there for just a moment. We have a new actor on the stage here. Obadiah. Now this is not the Obadiah. Of the minor prophets. Uh, that, that that has the, the prophet. Who has a book named after him in the Old Testament. This is not that Obadiah. This Obadiah. Is in charge of Ahab's palace. He, text says, is over the household. He's Ahab's right hand man. He, he's the, he is to Ahab what Alfred is to Batman. So, some of you, that's helpful. His name means servant of Yahweh. That's his name. You know what his profession is? Servant of Ahab. And as we'll see, Obadiah is this devout, believer in the Lord and yet he's at the exact same time the chief of staff to the most wicked king that Israel has ever known you talk about being caught between a rock and a hard place here then there's this parenthetical comment look verse three in the in the parentheses there the writer of Kings says now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly Verse 4, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets, hid them by fifties in a cave, and fed them with bread and water. So his commitment to the Lord isn't in name only. This is the real deal. He really fears the Lord. He's faithful to the Lord. It's not a sham. When Jezebel sought to purge the nation of God's prophets, he risked his neck to hide them and to feed them. And this was risky because if Jezebel or Ahab found out, he'd be dead. And, and, and it was costly because how did he feed these prophets in this time of drought and give them water? Well, it was probably a great cost to himself. He probably exhausted his means to provide for these prophets of the Lord. So he takes risk. He absorbs costs to, to be faithful to the Lord, support his messenger's so he's genuinely committed to the Lord, and he's committed to the service of this evil king. You think those are possible to put together? It seems that they are. He apparently kept his faith in the Lord with integrity. Nothing in the text shows us other, says otherwise. But for the most part, his faith was kept privately. And that, though, was about to change. <laughs> So as the drought is getting worse and worse and worse, and it's, it, the, the, it, it's especially severe in the capital, Ahab decides that to send Obadiah and in one direction to look for grass for his animals, and he goes in the other direction to look for grass, look for pasture lands for the animals. So verse 5, And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it, and Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in the other direction by himself. Now, it's it's crazy to me that the king himself is going on a grass hunt here. I mean, you think about that. He's not sending a servant, he's going himself. I mean, it shows how dire the situation was in the capital. And, and, And what's really sad, though, is how screwed up the king's priorities are. He's okay with Jezebel killing off the prophets of the Lord. He's not so concerned about all the people in the nation suffering and starving to death. He's really concerned that his horse's ribs are starting to show. He's concerned about his animals more than anything. Animals were the military strength, and he doesn't want to lose that. So he's determined to find food for them, no matter how much the civilian population suffers. So it's such a high priority that he and his number two go personally looking for grass. Well, as it happens, Obadiah is walking along, and he bumps into Elijah, the most wanted man in Israel. And the text is highlighting the providence of this. It says, Behold, Elijah met him. Obadiah falls down on his face, says, Verse 7, Is it you, my lord Elijah? Elijah answers, It's I. And Elijah gives him some instructions. He says, go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. Now that command completely rocked Obadiah's world. The whole balancing act that he had managed to maintain between faithfully serving Yahweh and faithfully uh, serving Ahab, it just took a sledgehammer blow by this charge from Elijah. Ahab's number one servant knew that um, Elijah was Ahab's number one enemy. The king hated him. He thought Elijah was the cause of all of his problems and all the problems in the land. And any suspected complicity between Obadiah and Elijah with this three-year disappearance would just be really bad for Obadiah. He would die. And so let's listen to let's listen to Obadiah's own words as he wrestles with this order from Elijah now just one little side comment I was thinking about this just this morning that, that when when the Lord is speaking to Elijah and telling him to go to Ahab he gives him a command and he gives him a promise and you know what uh, Elijah does the same thing with Obadiah he gives him a command and go tell Ahab and then he's going to give him a promise now there's there's, the command comes in verse 8. The promise doesn't come until verse 15. It almost seems as if, and this is just preacher imagination here, that Elijah's starting to speak to him, give him the command, then give him the promise. But Obadiah interrupts him and he just bursts into this rant. It seems like he just interrupts him mid-sentence. But verse 9, Obadiah says to Elijah as he gives his command, and he said, how have I sinned? That you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me. As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, I know what's going to happen. The Spirit of the Lord will carry you I know not where. And as so, when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord for my youth, has it not been told, my Lord, what I did with Je- when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave, and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. Verse 15, and Elijah slapped him across the face and said, Get a hold of yourself, man. That's what it seems like, it should say. (laughs) It's not what it says. No, you have this conflicted struggle in Obadiah. He fears the Lord, but he's afraid of Ahab. And let's be honest this morning. We can relate to that struggle, can't we? We can sincerely love, trust, fear the Lord. And yet we can be scared of people. We feel this tension, we feel the, the weight and the, the cost of following Jesus and obeying him. We have family members, who we know need Christ, and they need to hear the gospel, and we feel the struggle as we're going to some of you will be traveling to be with him at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and you you know they need Christ, you know they're lost without him and and yet we don't want to do anything to disrupt the family dynamics and to cause the fence, and, and we don't want to hurt that relationship, and so we're so tempted to just be quiet. We can relate to this struggle. We fear the Lord, but we're afraid of people, afraid of the outcome. And so, Doing what Elijah asked him to do here would put his own life in danger. And not only that, it might reveal his secret support of these other true prophets of the Lord and put their lives in danger. But Elijah won't back down, verse 15. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, God is the living God. Get this, Obadiah. Before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So as, as real and difficult as the struggle between fear and faith was for Obadiah, this promise is enough for Obadiah. So verse 16, Obadiah goes to meet Ahab. And he tells him that Elijah is here. I'm sure that was a long, difficult walk. All of the thoughts wrestling through his head of what might happen. But he doesn't. Let me just a couple implications real quick from this first scene before we get really to the meat of the story. One is that Obadiah and Elijah give us two examples of how we can serve God. God raises up Elijahs and he raises up Obadiahs. They both have purpose in God's plans. Not everyone will be called to formal public ministry like an Elijah. In fact, most won't. For every one Elijah, there are thousands of Obadiahs. Um. And and Elijah's need Obadiah's just as much as Obadiah's need Elijah's. All right, put the metaphor aside. But let me, this is what I'm saying, is that we we need godly Christians in all spheres of society. And we need them working with, for Ahab's in the culture. We need public school teachers and government leaders and doctors and attorneys and me- mechanics and roofers and accountants and pilots and film producers and... Businessmen and businesswomen of all kinds, all trades. You see your job as part of your calling from the Lord. You strive to live for Christ where God has placed you. Even if you're working for an Ahab, you try to do your work honorably to the Lord and serve your boss, your employer well. God places his people in some very unlikely places. That's one of the things this teaches us. But but if you're an Obadiah, use your use your resources, use your influence and in, and in, in your abilities to serve God. Work hard, make money, and get get paid benefits or benefits like paid vacations, and use all of those things to to further God's cause in this world. That's what Obadiah is doing, and and in particular, use your resources to help suffering believers meet their needs, especially those who risk their lives for the sake of getting the gospel out like these prophets were. And so I, just one, one way and one immediate application is we have this grace promise. And, and so this is a great time for us to, to be Obadiah-like here and, and give and pledge to, to see the, our missionaries well supported so they're freed up to continue to, to run. And maybe we can take on more missionaries, more Elijahs, more mouthpieces out there who are going into sometimes difficult places to make Christ known. And so we have the deadline coming up, I think, December 7th. Frank, uh, where are you there? What is it? November 30th. November 30th. All right, yes. Don't listen to that first comment. Delete that. Uh, November 30th, the deadline. So please take this week and, and, and fill that out. Pray about that. Give more than you've, been, than you've given before. Make, make it a priority. But this is one of the ways we can, can live and learn from Obadiah here. Make sacrifices for yourself for the sake of the Lord's cause. Second application, real quick. If you are an Obadiah, listen. That, that balance that you've worked to maintain and that you've enjoyed for maybe decades, there may come a time when God disrupts that. There may come a time when you have to choose whether you're going to listen and follow your boss, your employer, or whether you're going to listen and follow and obey the Lord. There may come a time like that, and this is what happens here. But listen, always choose to obey God. Even if it costs you your job, even if it costs you your life. You make that decision now, Lord. Whatever comes, I'm yours. Um, all right. So Elijah says to Obadiah, you tell Ahab, I'll be back. I just listened to Terminator there. But, uh, but he's not wearing wraparound shades and speaking with an Austrian accent or riding a Harley or anything. He's wearing sandals and a full beard and walking probably. But he's back on the scene. That's what this is setting us up for. All right, so the first question. First thing, what are we supposed to do with an either-or God in a both-and world? We, we need to go public. Risk it all for the sake of the Lord. Second, we need to take sides. The stark differences between God and little g God show that there is no middle ground between them. That's what we'll see in these verses that follow. Verse 17, Obadiah goes and tell Ahab, to tell Ahab about Elijah. In verse 17, and when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Ahab blames Elijah for all of Israel's troubles. He thinks that the only hope, he also thinks that the only hope for rain to fall is for Elijah's blood to flow. He wants him dead. But Elijah is not intimidated by Ahab's accusation, his attacks here. He, He brings the blame back to where it belongs at Ahab's feet and at his family's feet. Verse 18, and he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. The real problem in Israel is not a lack of rain. The real problem is a lack of loyalty and obedience to God. That's what he's saying. The drought is just a symptom. It's the divine judgment for your sin and rebellion. And so, one of the things we see, though, and what we'll see is that Elijah's objective and God's objective here is not just to shame Ahab. His, the real goal is the repentance of Israel. So he challenges Ahab, verse 19, Sin and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel, is just, you, you, have a, you should have received a map when you came in. Uh, and, and so pull that out and you can see, Frank, thank you for this. And, and um, we thought this would be the simplest way to get this in your, into your hands. Uh, Mount Carmel there, um, north of center... On the, on the coast, the Mediterranean Sea there, sticks out there, Mount Carmel. There's this high rise that comes out of the Mediterranean Sea at a height of about 1,700 feet. Now, there are some images. Okay, yeah, I see the map there. There's a couple images on here. This would be the mount. I have not been there, but some of you have, and so you can relate more personally. Oh, is that the only image? Okay, I may have accidentally deleted another slide. Um, but... But just to give you some sense of this, now it's a geographically prominent location, so it's a fitting place for this showdown that's about to take place. But it's not just selected by Elijah because it's a good place to watch fight. Um, this is this is an area that's thought to be home of the gods. It's long been associated with the worship of Baal, and so Elijah, what he's doing is he's giving the Baal worshippers home court advantage. It's on their turf. By choosing Mount Carmel. And so Ahab was to assemble. The text says. The 450 prophets of Baal. And the 400 prophets of Asherah. Who eat at Jezebel's table. They they live on the state's dime. They're supported. Sanctioned by Ahab. And Jezebel. And all the while the Lord's prophets. Who aren't martyred. Are hiding away in caves. Trying to survive. But verse 20 Elijah or Ahab does what Elijah requests. He gets all the people together, gathers all the prophets around on Mount Carmel. And you just imagine the scene: thousands of people and in front of the crowds. There are these hundreds of prophets, probably dressed in their in their elaborate garb, and, and on some faces there's just angry scowls, and on the other faces there are these snide smirks because they they think they're going to show them up. And with everybody everybody gathered, Elijah dresses the people. He's addressed the king directly already. He will address the prophets directly, but he addresses the people directly. Why? Because that's who he's after. He's after their hearts. He's after their repentance. And so what he says to them, again, is the crux of the whole passage. The whole scene is master planned by God to drive this question home to them and to you. Verse 21. And Elijah came near. That's not just... A filler. He's coming near to the people. And he says to all the people, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. That's an unusual expression there. Limping between two different opinions. The the word means to hobble between two bows. It's, It's like sticks or crutches is probably the idea. So it's just wavering, waffling shuffling back and forth, just uh, non-commitment, uncertainty. How, how long? It's time to choose. The, you, you, you fickle worshipers, you need to choose between the Lord or Baal. You can't, you can't put Yahweh worship and Baal worship together. It won't work. Syncretism is not an option. It's not both and, it's either or. And so Elijah's challenge to the people, How is it met? It's met with the sound of chirping crickets. Verse 21, the end of it, it says, And the people did not answer him a word. They didn't feel they needed to. They didn't want to choose. In spite of what Elijah says, they wanted to worship both Baal and the Lord. Each one had something to offer. Baal was a storm god after all. And they they needed rain big time. And so they didn't want to risk upsetting him any more than he may already be upset. And so they think there's truth in both religions. Why can't we just blend them together? In this inclusive faith. God's claims are absolute. And Elijah makes that clear. If the Lord Yahweh is God, then Baal is not. And if Baal is really a viable option, then faith in the Lord is a total sham. It's either or. So Elijah issues a second challenge to the people. He's this way to test the truth claims of, of both of these deities. Verse 22, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And Elijah, again, he seems to be playing right into the hands of these prophets of Baal. They have home court advantage. They outnumber Elijah big time. They, they get to choose the bull. There's no trick bull here. They, they, they get the ball first. They get to go first. They, the, the contest itself has something to do with calling down fire, which is a specialty of Baal, lightning, god of the storm. I mean, he's, he's making it as easy as he can for them. So verse 25, then he speaks to the prophets directly, tells the prophets pick their bull, prepare it, call upon the name of their God. And with that challenge issued and accepted, then the battle begins. And that moves us to the final movement in the text here. And the final answer to the question, what are we supposed to do with an either-or God in a both-end world? We go public, we take sides, finally face the facts, and we're going to see the reality here that unfolds. That undivided, undivided loyalty to God rests on convincing proof That he alone is the living and true God. So verse 26. The Baal prophets. They begin their attempts in the morning. Probably around 9 o'clock in the morning. Which is kind of when the day would begin. They take the bull. The people give them. They prepare it. Then they begin their ritual prayers. And basically their prayers amount to this repeated shout. Oh Baal answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. And for hours they go on. Oh, Baal, answer us. And their praying is accompanied by dancing, this ritual dance. It says that they, they limped around the altar that they hadn't made. That limped is the same word in verse 21. It's just this shuffling back and forth, this kind of dance they did. So, so those, these rituals go on throughout the morning all the way until noontime. But the silence from heaven is deafening. Says, text says, But there was no voice. No one answered. There was there was no answer because Baal was a no god. That's that's why. And so after three hours of this nonsense, Elijah begins to taunt and mock. These prophets of Baal, verse 27, and at noon Elijah mocked him, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God, a God. Either he is musing in, in deep thought, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. This sarcasm, his mockery, it's, he's, what he's doing is he's showing his contempt for the wicked, empty claims of these prophets. And it's also, he's doing another thing, he's, he's, he's further agitating them and provoking them to just keep going, do more, to, to spur them on to even more frenzied activity. He, he doesn't want them to quit until the full futility of their actions is, is seen by everyone watching. So he says basically, shout louder, wake them up. And they, his taunt works, they try even harder to get Baal's attention. And sympathy, verse 28, And they cried louder and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. This was not uncommon in pagan religion. It was, it was done to, to try to influence God, to try to arouse His, His pity. And so they're doing this, but it's all in vain. It's all in vain. It goes on. From noon, so, so this has been going on now from 9 to 6, so, so uh, till 3 in the afternoon, till the evening sacrifice, six long hours, they, they had to be worn out from all of this frenzied effort. Um, but verse 29, the end of verse 29, it's very starkly and very emphatically, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Baal is totally silent and unresponsive. Again, there's no response because there's no Baal. There, there's a non-existent gods give non-existent answers to prayers. Verse 30. Finally, Elijah takes the center stage. Elijah said to all the people, "Come, come near to me." And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that he had. That had been thrown down. And this may have been an altar that had been destroyed during Jezebel's purging of the nation. Um, apparently there were faithful worshipers of the Lord who... They couldn't go to Jerusalem and worship the Lord there. So they just kind of made do and they built this altar and had been worshiping him. But it had, as the prophets were killed, as worshipers were sent into hiding and the altar was destroyed. So he rebuilds this altar. Verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he rebuilt the altar in the name of the Lord. So twelve stones, twelve tribes, that's a powerful statement. This, these divided tribes, this divided nation, there is still one covenant, one Lord. That, that, that They are still one people in terms of God's purposes. So he builds this altar with these 12 stones. And after building the altar, he prepares the sacrifice. And he made a trench around the altar, as great as would contain two sails of seed, about seven gallons. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And they said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water and so he's he made it as easy as he could for Baal now he's making it as difficult as he possibly can for the Lord and and then Elijah prays it's very simple very brief prayer he doesn't use any of the elaborate antics that the Baal prophets tried he's a man of prayer we saw that last week we see it we'll see it throughout his life he's not a worker of magic He doesn't need to manipulate a reluctant God. He doesn't need to uh, use formulas or dances to get God's attention. He has complete confidence in the Lord and he calls upon Him. Verse 36, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. What? that take me 20 seconds? Probably 15 because I talk faster in public, but I timed it at home. It was about 20 seconds of prayer. Six hours of hollering, dancing, bleeding. 20 seconds of praying. And, and notice the content of his prayer. He's motivated by the glory of God among his people, he's, a, he's passionate for that. Let it, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. He's shown that Baal is dead. Now he wants everyone to see that God is alive. That's what's driving him. He desperately wants these people to know that you, oh Lord, are God. And then he has these secondary requests. He wants, he wants the people to know that he's God's servants, that he's done these things at God's command. He's not a troubler of Israel. He's a servant of the living Lord. And secondly, he wants the people to know that God, through this, is turning their hearts back to him. The, the whole purpose of all of this showdown is their conversion. He wants their hearts. So God's answer comes immediately. No sooner are the words out of Elijah's mouth than verse 38. Then the fire fell, fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. Everything licked up the water that was in the trench. And it came out of this clear blue sky, or hazy sky, with all the dust. But the following verses make that clear. There is no storm going on. This is not lightning. This is God's supernatural work. Verse 39, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. You remember the question of verse 21? If the Lord is God, follow Him. And here they're saying, they didn't say a word then, but now they say Yahweh is God. And they affirm that, as they're affirming that the Lord alone is God, they're also affirming that Baal is no God. And then Elijah issues some orders to him. Verse forty. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. They are a cancer that has to be removed from the nation. And so he orders, he orders them to be separated. And, 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 and then he says, And they seized, him, seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now I know that makes some of us a little uncomfortable. This won't be the last story that makes you uncomfortable in Kings. Um, why kill them? Why not love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you. Let me just say real quick, this is not murder. This is a commanded purging of moral and spiritual evil from Israel. Listen, Elijah knew his Bible. And in Deuteronomy chapter 13, we find that God orders His people. He says, if there's false prophets who lead God's people astray, from the Lord into idolatry, they must be punished by death. And he's obeying the Lord. That's a different dispensation, a different time, but this is, and, and the reason for that law, the reason for this happening, is it's a powerful reminder again, of the whole point of the passage. There is no middle ground, between the Lord and idols. You have to choose. All traces of Baal must go. So, you see, God, He's a God of justice. He's a God of wrath, of judgment. But He's also a God of mercy. He's faithful to keep His promises as the next verses show. The Lord promised to Elijah in verse 1, Show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. And so with the coming of the rain, the, the, the defeat of Baal will be complete. And so he, his claims would be seen for what they are. Baal's claims, Empty. And God's claims to be authentic. And so notice his confidence in the Lord. Verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel. where he could get a good view looking to the west across toward the Mediterranean where storms come from. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between... His knees. Verse 43. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And when he, and he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again. And he did the seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand rising from the sea. And that's all the evidence Elijah knew, needed to know that God heard and answered his prayer. And so he moves into action. He says... Go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. He wants him on the road before the storm really lets loose. Because you can imagine three and a half years of drought, that would cause all kinds of problems with torrential rain. I mean, mudslides and swollen streams, flash floods and just all kinds of issues. So he says, you need to get out of here. Verse 45, and in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Uh, you, just, you just think about this scene. and Let me just finish the chapter here. Uh, once again, the power of the Lord comes upon Elijah here. Verse 46. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment, tucked in his cloak. And he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So he... God enables him supernaturally to run uh, at least 17 miles, maybe more, could be more like marathon distance here, back to Jezreel, uh, arriving ahead of Ahab and his chariots. So this is incredible. Now, you just think of the scene again. Three and a half years of drought. The smell of rain and the feeling of rain. Oh. Uh, there were probably some there were some kids that had never they were probably freaking out because they have never seen anything like this. they've maybe heard they remember've heard, heard stories but 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 this is stuff falling from the skies. and you think about Elijah <laughs> rain on his face as he ran those miles back to Jezreel. What's that taste in his mouth, that rain the taste of God's grace, God's grace. There's still work to do. Jezebel still wants him dead. He's going to be discouraged and depressed. We'll see this next week. But right then and there, how God's grace must have tasted to him as he he ran back. The Lord's faithfulness. This victory that God has won over these false gods. I I say to you um, what Elijah says to the people. How... How long will you go on limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If if something else is God, run hard after it. But there is no middle ground. You need to choose. I I say to my Christian brothers and sisters, listen to me this morning. um, Do you have any competing gods in your own life? I mean, there are, there, are, there are idols that lurk in the dark parts of our hearts. And, and, and they're there. You know, how you, you know how you identify them? You start asking yourself questions. What, what are the things that you look to other than God for comfort, for security, for happiness, for meaning, for help? Those are the things that make up idols in our hearts. And We all have them. See this story; it ought to just kind to hit reset button for our hearts. To say it's the Lord alone. I want to follow Him exclusively, courageously. Maybe, maybe you're feeling like Obadiah. Maybe there's a choice that's set before you. Your bosses—maybe it's something quite literal. Your bosses ask you to do something you know you can't do, you shouldn't do. Are you going to follow the Lord? Are you going to compromise? All right, but also, unbelieving friend, maybe you're here. You were invited. You've been coming for years, and yet you you've not trusted in Christ. Listen to God's word, not the culture here. There, there. Again, there is no middle ground. Don't continue to waver between opinions about God. That may be philosophically respectable in our culture. That may be politically correct in our world, but that is spiritually impossible and very dangerous to your soul. If Jesus is Lord and Savior and he is, then follow him. Love him. Trust him. Worship him. We we we're, we're, we're sitting in Fayette County, but we're standing on Mount Carmel today. And and Elijah's challenge hasn't gone away if the lord is god worship him let me just say two things one is that the gospel is wonderfully inclusive it is it's it's for all people in all places if i can i am not more confident of anything else that the gospel is for you today everyone who calls upon the name of the lord will be saved god is The Lord is not some local deity. He's not a western God. He's a God of all people in all places. And He can be your Lord. So it's wonderfully inclusive. But it's also also relentlessly exclusive at the same time. Jesus is not a way. He's the way. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. He's the only way. To know the Lord. To have you saved from sin. Saved from sin's punishment. And so the invitation is for you to come and believe. If you've not trusted in Christ. And brother or sister, if you're here, you know Christ. You love Him. You worship Him. But maybe there's division in your heart. Confess that to the Lord. Return to Him today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use this, this word this morning to show us what it means to live with an either-or kind of loyalty to you in a both-and generation. Um, that, and I pray for my brothers and sisters here as we examine our own hearts, God, I pray that you would give us gracious hearts that that love those who don't know you and and, they la- and that we would labor hard to see to see those around us who don't know Christ see them exposed to the life-giving, powerful gospel of Christ, that we would represent you well in this world so that all will see that you alone are God and that they will bow their knees before you. We pray in your son's name. Amen.